Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. The only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Big tech CEOs are questioned on child safety. A court voids Elon Musk's $56 billion Tesla pay package. The U.S. Feds holds interest rates steady. The DOJ investigates Democrat Cori Bush's security spending. A Putin critic submits his bid for president. An Israeli official says a hostage deal could soon move ahead. Zelensky reportedly considers firing the head of Ukraine's armed forces. Agricultural protests continue to simmer in France. Oregon declares a state of emergency over its fentanyl crisis. And a famine wonder pill is trialed in Africa. Topping today's podcast, the U.S. Senate questions top social media execs on child safety. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, Fox News, and CNBC. Executives from the five leading social media companies Wednesday testified about child safety protection measures on their respective platforms before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. With the chief executive officers of Meta, X, TikTok, Snap, and Discord in front of its committee, Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, the committee chairman, in his opening remarks said the companies are, quote, responsible for many of the dangers our children face online, and he criticized them for their, quote, failures to adequately invest in trust and safety. Recorded testimony showed children and parents speaking about exploitation on social media and parents who lost their children to suicide silently held pictures of their deceased children in the hearing. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg turned around to address the parents at the hearing after Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, asked him if he wanted to apologize to the victims of social media dangers. Zuckerberg said to the parents, quote, No one should go through the things that your families have suffered, while pledging a commitment to improve child safety measures. Meanwhile, TikTok CEO Sho Zichu was questioned about his ByteDance-owned company's affiliation with the Chinese Communist Party. Chu repeatedly denied any affiliation with the CCP, insisting that he only serves his country, Singapore, and that only ByteDance's companies based in China are required to share data with the government. This hearing comes as Meta is facing multiple lawsuits related to child safety on Facebook and Instagram, and more than 40 attorneys general are suing the platform for contributing to mental health issues, including teenage eating disorders. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story today. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a narrative A provided by the Gateway Pundit. Congratulations are due to the bipartisan group of senators who are taking on this issue and confronting these CEOs who are profiting off the exploitation of children. Wednesday's hearing was a step in the right direction. Still, much more needs to be done to protect children from the dangers of social media exploitation, because too often these platforms have placed profit above safety. And The Guardian gives us narrative B. These CEOs are truly sorry for any harm their platforms have caused. Many families have dealt with unthinkable suffering. But as studies have been released to help better mitigate the harms, the platforms are doing what they can to implement controls and tools to make their sites as safe as possible. More will be done moving forward to provide security for kids and improve industry standards. 
And the nerds at the Metaculous Prediction community are going to get things started with their first nerd narrative. They think that there's a 20% chance that TikTok will be sold to a U.S. entity before 2025. How much would you pay for TikTok, Eric? How much do you think it's going to be sold for? My gosh, that's going to... I don't know, but I bet you time's running out. Okay. TikTok, <laughs> as you say. Got it. <laughs> a Delaware court voids Musk's $56 billion Tesla pay package. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Guardian, Yahoo France, and BBC News. On Tuesday, a Delaware judge annulled the $56 billion pay package Tesla awarded to Chief Executive Officer Elon Musk in 2018, ruling that the company's board had failed to justify the, quote, unfathomable sum. In striking down his excessive compensation, Judge Catherine St. J. McCormick questioned whether Tesla could establish that the money was, quote, necessary to retain Musk and achieve its goals. As per Tesla's stock value on Tuesday, the 10-year pay deal would reportedly be worth around $51 billion, approximately 25% of Musk's $210.6 billion estimated worth. Tesla had agreed to pay Musk $21.3 million stock options in 12 trances tied to multiple milestones, including taking the electric vehicle maker's market value to $650 billion. According to an estimate, Musk's package, which he justified by saying it's a way to get humanity to Mars, was about six times larger than the combined pay of the 200 highest-paid executives based on 2021 figures. And this comes after Tesla shareholder Richard Tornada challenged the largest pay deal in U.S. corporate history in 2018. Adam, thanks for those facts. Narrative A is our first spin, and it comes from New York Post. Elon Musk joined Tesla at a time when the company was in deep crisis. He worked almost around the clock to fix the problems at the now iconic electric vehicle manufacturer. Even when he testified in court in November of 2022, the company had achieved 11 of the 12 benchmarks set before Musk to fulfill his pay package deal. The pay, though it may seem gigantic, is fully justified. We're going to continue with a narrative B provided by Market Screener. Tesla's company board needs a few independent directors who could apply fair standards to initiate the restructuring of Musk's exorbitant pay package. Musk may argue that the firm hasn't lost anything since he hasn't exercised his stock option, but his salary is a disservice to shareholders and the firm must address the governance issues that led to this situation. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's an 11% chance that Elon Musk will become the first trillionaire. U.S. Fed rates hold steady but not ready for cuts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, CNBC, Fox News, Associated Press, and CNN. The U.S. Federal Reserve announced on Wednesday that it would hold interest rates steady, signaling that it would abandon its policy of continued rate hikes to bring inflation down to its goal of 2%. However, the Fed also poured cold water on hopes that it would start cutting rates for the first time in years. The Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, met for the first time this year and wrapped up its two-day meeting by releasing a statement that removed language about rate hikes. Despite removing this language, the FOMC maintained a neutral tone about future rate slashes, acknowledging that while cooling, inflation remains above 2%. The committee added it does not expect to reduce rates until, quote, it has gained greater confidence that inflation is moving sustainably toward 2%. 
The benchmark rate remains at a 22-year high of roughly 5.4%, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that the central bank will likely hold rates steady at the FOMC's next meeting in March. As inflation soared over the last two years, the Fed implemented 11 consecutive rate increases before pausing rates as inflation cooled. The rate pause was widely expected, but the stock market fell Wednesday afternoon after Powell signaled that rate cuts aren't on the horizon in the coming months. The Dow Jones fell 0.8%, while the S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite fell 1.6% and 2.2% respectively. Meanwhile, labor reports released Wednesday indicated that job growth and wages are slowing down, and the Labor Department reported that a key employment index increased at just 0.9% in the fourth quarter of 2023, the smallest rise since the second quarter of 2021. Thanks for the facts, Eric. The spins are going to start with the establishment critical narrative provided by the Economic Policy Institute. Thankfully, the Feds seem to be moving beyond its overly hawkish policy of non-stop rate hikes, but instead of keeping rates constant and stalling the economy until inflation reaches 2%, it should cut interest rates immediately and allow the economy to grow. While some say the Fed is being moderate in its current approach, the fact remains that rates are still at a 22-year high. The Fed's policy has done little to bring down inflation and any cool-down is due to natural economic cycles. NPR gives us a pro-establishment narrative. The Fed has taken a deliberate approach to its rate-setting policy, and it seems like it has moved past its series of rate hikes. However, the Fed is rightfully wary of decreasing key rates as soon as the economy gets stronger. While some investors may get frustrated by this approach, the Fed's patience has allowed the economy to continue growing at a stable rate while also slowing down rampant inflation. There are many moving parts that factor into rate decisions, and the Fed is prudently waiting for the economic picture to become clearer. The nerds are going to keep on spinning with their narratives. They say that there's a 50% chance that the U.S. federal funds rate will be 4.9% or lower on May 31st, 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Representative Cory Bush reveals investigations into security spending. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Open Secrets, the website formerly known as Twitter, New York Times, and Associated Press. The U.S. Department of Justice, or the DOJ, has begun investigating U.S. Representative Cory Bush's financing of private security services. The investigation, sparked by a lawsuit by the Foundation of Accountability and Civic Trust, is looking into her decision to hire her husband as part of her security detail and pay him with campaign funds. In her statement confirming the investigation, Bush claimed that her use of campaign funds on security services was, quote-unquote, permissible and in compliance, quote, with all applicable laws and House rules. She cited relentless threats and her physical safety in life as justification for the expenditure. She further stated that her husband's employment within her security team was, quote, at or below a fair market rate. Bush maintained that her campaign is, quote, fully cooperating with the DOJ's reviewing while also accusing, quote, a number of investigators, including by the Federal Election Commissions, or the FEC, and the House Committees on Ethics, to be the result of frivolous and baseless complaints. Within the 2021-2024 election cycles, the name Peace Security 
has so far received at least $381,000 from 78 payments by Bush's campaign, the congresswoman's highest expenditure. In just 2022, according to the lawsuit, Bush's campaign paid Peace Security over $225,000, another $50,000 to a man named Nathaniel Davis, and $60,000 to her husband, Corey Merritts. Merritts received his money in bi-weekly sums of $25,000. This follows a probe conducted by the Office of Congressional Ethics last October which unanimously concluded that Bush had not committed any wrongdoing by using campaign finances for private security. So far, the DOJ has declined to comment on the matter. Thank you, Adam, for presenting the facts. We have a round of spins. It starts with the Republican narrative coming from National Review. The hypocrisy and irony of Cori Bush incessantly demanding for police to be defunded while paying hundreds of thousands for private security is untenable. Bush has previously argued that it's time for people to, quote, suck it up and defund the police. It's time for her to face the consequences of the illegal abuses of her government office. The Huffington Post is going to counter that with a Democratic narrative. Cori Bush, like many members of the female and minority-led squad, continues to be the target of dangerous threats and incessant criticism from the far right paying family members a fair price for services using campaign finance is legal. This brings to question whether she would face such scrutiny from the right if she hadn't been a leader in the Black Lives Matter movement. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that at least 14% of black voters will vote for a Republican president in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. A Putin challenger submits a bid to run for Russian president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Barron's, BBC News, DW, CNN, and Politico. A prominent critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, Boris Nadezhdin, said he has collected enough signatures to qualify for Russia's upcoming presidential election. The former member of parliament, who has become well-known for his critiques of Russian President Vladimir Putin and his calls for an end to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, announced on Wednesday that he had received the required 100,000 signatures needed to be considered. The documents were handed over to the Central Election Commission, which will now verify the authenticity of the signatures and decide within 10 days whether he is allowed to run for president. Yakaterina Dunsova, another anti-war candidate, was rejected by the Central Election Commission in December over alleged errors in her campaign documents. Should Nadezhdin's bid be rejected, he said he's prepared to call for mass protests in 150 cities across the country. Putin announced late last year that he would be running for his fifth term as president, which would keep him in power, until at least the year 2030. The Kremlin has emphasized that Putin has the overwhelming support of Russian citizens ahead of the March 15th to 17th election. Russian presidential campaigns have previously been known for the alleged presence of, quote, spoiler candidates, where candidates who are not viewed as a threat to the incumbent are allowed to run, but sometimes don't even campaign. This presidential race, however, has become marked by the so-called, quote, spoiler candidates dropping out of the race before it even begins and expressing support for current President Putin. Thank you, Eric. Politico's going to start these spins with the establishment critical narrative. Despite his overwhelming outpouring of support, it would be surprising if Nadezhdin isn't barred from running for president. Giving Putin's history of persecuting political rivals and shutting down any genuine political opposition, democracy in Russia is performative. 
as no candidates actually capable of beating Putin are allowed to run, something that must change if Moscow wants to align with the rules-based international order. The Moscow Times has the pro-establishment narrative. None of the other candidates campaigning against Putin stand any chance due to the president's current popularity. All of Russia is united in favor of this long-standing successful leader. At times of turmoil, like Russia being at war with Ukraine, it's especially important that the Russian people come together and vote for stability in the face of a threatening hegemonic West. And the nerds are going to keep on spinning. They think that there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of president of Russia by October of 2028. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Recent news out of Israel says that the hostage deal could move ahead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Axios, Jerusalem Post, Washington Post, New York Times, and Huffington Post. An unnamed Israeli official told NBC on Wednesday that there are, quote, strong indications that a proposal regarding the phased release of Israeli hostages and a weeks-long ceasefire in Gaza will soon move ahead. However, the proposal, which is still being worked on, must be approved by the ruling cabinet, after which the Israeli public would have 24 hours to contest it before it becomes official policy. As negotiations reportedly progress, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken asked the State Department to review possible U.S. options for the recognition of a Palestinian state once the war in Gaza ends, according to two U.S. officials. U.S. policy, which hasn't changed, has traditionally been to only support the recognition of a Palestinian state as a result of direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with some of the relatives of hostages being held in Gaza, assuring them that the government was working to release their loved ones and stressing the necessity of keeping the details of the negotiations private. Media reports have indicated that the proposal, which doesn't include a firm commitment to a permanent ceasefire, has faced several obstacles, namely over Hamas's presence in Gaza and the withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Strip. Anonymous officials familiar with the negotiation said that the proposal lacks details and will take time to implement once finished. Regarding the humanitarian situation in Gaza, the U.S. State Department said on Tuesday that the main U.N. aid agency in Gaza, the UNRWA, had received over 99% of the money allocated by Congress after Washington announced last week that it would, quote, temporarily pause funding to the agency following Israeli allegations that some of its staff have ties to Hamas and took part in the October 7th attacks. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry reports that the conflict has killed nearly 27,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at 12,000 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Adam, thanks for those facts. The first spin is a pro-Palestine narrative coming from the nation. Israel is losing its war in Gaza. After over three months and over 26,000 dead Palestinians, Israel has failed to release hostages via military operations, to kill Hamas's top leaders, or to create conditions advantageous to ending this long, drawn-out conflict. 
Even then, if Israel did manage to achieve the majority of its war goals, it would still be left without a clear plan of action for the day after the war. Destroying a group like Hamas is a fool's errand, and Netanyahu has dug Israel into a hole that it will have a tough time climbing out of. Israel should accept a comprehensive ceasefire. The Daily Beast is going to counter that with the pro-Israel narrative. Though, of course, this war has not been easy, Israel has made steady progress in Gaza, first neutralizing Gaza City before moving on to other population centers like Khan Yunus. Israel has substantially degraded Hamas's military capabilities and leadership and even partially degraded elite Hezbollah units stationed alongside Israel's northern border. Indeed, as Israel's enemies should recognize, Israel's raw military power should not even be up for debate, and the country will fight and negotiate as it sees fit to achieve its goals. According to recent reports, Zelensky might still replace a top general. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Financial Times, Independent, Ukrainska Pravda, and Times. Independent, Ukrainska Pravda, and the Times UK. Following rumors that Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, was dismissed earlier in the week, prompting denials from the Ukrainian president's office, new reports in Western media have suggested that President Volodymyr Zelensky may still be preparing to sack the army leader. Speculation started to swirl when Zaluzhny, who has been in the role since July of 2021, was summoned for a meeting with Zelensky on Monday. Reports about his alleged dismissal soon started to appear in a number of prominent Ukrainian news outlets and other media. However, despite the denials, publications including the BBC, The Guardian, The Economist, and The Financial Times, citing officials with knowledge of the meeting, soon shed more light on the encounter. According to the Financial Times, who spoke with four officials, Zaluzhny was offered a new role as a defense advisor but turned it down. Two of the sources told the publication that Zelensky had made clear to Zaluzhny that irrespective of whether he took the position, he would be dismissed from his current role. All of the sources told the Financial Times that a decision to dismiss the general had in fact already been made, but that Zelensky may wait for some time following the reaction on social media. Further complicating matters, the Times of London reported that once Zaluzhny returned to his office and told deputies, quote, I'm packing my things, senior military commanders and international partners, including the U.S. and U.K., pressured Zelensky into reversing his decision. While it remains unclear if the sacking will ultimately take place, reports suggested that a decision to remove Zaluzhny may also be hampered by the lack of suitable replacements. Alexander Sirsky, commander of Ukraine's ground forces, is reportedly unpopular among certain stakeholders. Meanwhile, questions hang over 38-year-old Kirill Budinov, head of military intelligence, due to his inexperience and the fact that he has never commanded an armed force, let alone one that employs more than one million people. Thank you, Eric. Here's the facts, Narrative A, provided by The Hill. Zaluzhny is a widely trusted general and has commanded Ukraine's armed forces since before the Russian invasion, losing a competent, respected, and combat-tested leader at a time when the country is hanging on for territory would be a colossal mistake and one that should be avoided. No one is more suitable for the job than him. Euromaiden Press has narrative B. While Zaluzhny is a trusted leader, Reports suggest that disagreements between Zelensky and him date back to the spring of 2022 and have again flared in recent weeks. Though sacking him may be unpopular, 
the decision to fire him needs to be taken, as Ukraine cannot have a situation where its military and political leadership are not coordinated. And the nerds are going to chime back in. They think that there's a 68% chance that Volodymyr Zelensky will be re-elected president in the next Ukrainian elections. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. There's news out of France where 18 have been arrested as farmers blockade a vegetable market. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Barons, and Le Monde. French police on Wednesday arrested 18 people for, quote, interfering with traffic after protesting farmers blocked the Rungus Wholesale Food Market near Paris, a major supply point for the 12 million residents of the French capital region. An additional 200 to 300 tractors coming from the southwest were blocked by police along the A6 highway leading to Rungus, with police checkpoints deployed around the market. Farmer unions have been demanding higher incomes, less red tape, and protection from foreign competition, despite assurances made by President Emmanuel Macron's government, including a promise to prevent a trade deal between the EU and South America, a reported 10,000 farmers set out along French roads Wednesday. Police are trying to keep the tractor convoys away from the urban centers, including airports and other strategic spots, utilizing armored vehicles, as well as checkpoints to block their path. Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin estimated around 10,000 of them were blocking some 100 spots on French roads. The cities targeted by the protesters included Lyon and Toulouse, besides Paris itself. Anger among farmers has been brewing across Europe in recent weeks. Besides France, agriculturists in Germany, Poland, Romania, Belgium, Italy, Spain, and other countries have also expressed discontent in recent days. Those were the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative, and it comes from the Times of UK. These protesters have genuine grievances that must be tackled, but the growing threat of violence is also a cause for worry. French farmers mean it much more than their peers in other countries when they warn of, quote, direct action. And the size of the protests this time around is ominous. This is despite the government making the right promises, including protections against imports. The establishment critical narrative is brought to us by Le Figaro. The government is not meeting the farmers' needs. This protest enjoys widespread grassroots support, 89% according to one estimate, even from outside the farming circle. The farmers' call to save the rural way of life is resonating with a wide section of French society. Even 81% of the ruling party supports this movement, showing popular disdain for the new prime minister and his policies. And the nerds of Metaculus say there's a 5% chance that Emmanuel Macron will cease being president of France before 2027. Oregon declares a state of emergency over a fentanyl crisis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the official website of the state of Oregon, Fox 59, The Hill, New York Times, and ABC News. Oregon Governor Tina Kotek, alongside the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, and Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson, declared a 90-day state of emergency in downtown Portland on Tuesday over concerns about the drug fentanyl. The declaration will see all three levels of government allocate resources and establish a, quote, command center to address the issue. The command center will connect drug addicts with first responders and give them access to resources, including drug treatment centers, behavioral health doctors, and food benefits. 
The Portland police will also partner with the state police in patrolling the city's downtown for sales of fentanyl. Over the 90 days, the Multnomah County Health Department will promote public education campaigns, including on public transit and billboards, as well as in digital and audio media, among others. Portland, for its part, will coordinate with the county in, quote, conducting outreach on the streets and distributing and training partners on the use of Narcan. Oregon has seen a growing number of overdose deaths since decriminalizing small amounts of most drugs in 2020 and now has the most synthetic opioid overdoses in the country and the third highest amount of all overdose deaths, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. As opioid drug overdoses in the state increased from 738 in 2021 to 956 a year later, Governor Kotek has also proposed recriminalizing public drug use and giving police more resources to combat drug dealing. She also wants to expand services to help the homeless. Fentanyl, which can be up to 50 times as potent as heroin and roughly 100 times as strong as morphine, reportedly killed over 107,000 people in the U.S. between January 2019 and June 2022, two-thirds of which were linked to synthetic opioids. According to the CDC, there are more than 150 daily deaths due to synthetic opioids. Eric, thank you. We're going to start these spins with the Democratic narrative provided by OPB. The health and safety factors at play have never been lost on the government, but the rate at which this drug has infected the streets has been difficult for everyone to catch up with. The danger of fentanyl is unlike any other drug, which is why each level of government in the state has been developing coordinating programs to combat the issue. This emergency declaration is Oregon's strongest anti-fentanyl effort yet and it will be the most impactful. Daily Mail gives us a Republican narrative. All of the Democrats' favorite policies have come together to create this tragedy. After the city defunded the police in 2020, drug use and homelessness skyrocketed, prompting them to increase the police budget by over $5 million a year later. And after they decriminalized drugs, both drug addiction and overdose deaths soared through the roof. This is a man-made crisis that could have been avoided if the state, county, and city governments had chosen common sense over politics. Our final story today comes from UNICEF touting a game-changing nutrition pill for Africa. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, UNICEF, Zinhao, The Guardian Nigeria, and UNICEF Ethiopia. UNICEF has been trialing a new all-in-one nutritional supplement that combines 15 vitamins and minerals in Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Rwanda to address childhood malnutrition, as well as malnutrition during pregnancy, which can lead to several adverse outcomes including stunting and below-average growth in children. This comes as, since the COVID pandemic outbreak, the number of pregnant and breastfeeding women and girls affected by severe malnutrition has reportedly spiked from 5.5 million to 6.9 million. Delivered in multiple forms, the multiple micronutrient supplements are customized to provide optimal amounts of essential ingredients. The latest evidence suggests that this supplementation program can reduce low birth weight by 12% preterm births by up to 8%, the rate of being small for gestational age newborn infants by 3-8%, to stillbirths by 5%, and the overall six-month infant mortality rate by 7%. 
in Rwanda, where 33% of children under 5 are stunted, and the maternal mortality rate is officially at 203 per 100,000 births, health officials announced in mid-January that the program would begin in five districts. In Nigeria, where the 2018 Demographic Health Survey showed that more than three in five pregnant women were anemic, the transition from iron and folic acid supplementation to multiple micronutrient supplements was announced this week. Officials stressed that the use of multiple micronutrient supplements was approved in 2021. The reported low-cost, high-impact, 180-day supplementation program was previously implemented in multiple districts in five regions of Ethiopia to improve the health and survival rates of pregnant mothers and their babies as part of the prenatal care program. Thanks for presenting the facts, Adam. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from UNICEF, West Africa. Due to war and climate change, sub-Saharan Africa is suffering the worst malnutrition crisis in the world with tragically high numbers of children suffering from rapid weight and muscle loss and stunted growth. Systems must be put in place to better detect these ailments, after which these issues can be solved when the international community provides them with the necessary foods or supplements to grow properly and thrive. And there's going to be an establishment critical narrative for this story provided by Gray Zone. Climate change isn't causing regional conflicts and famines. In reality, it's the West and its non-governmental organizations, international organizations, and the propaganda outlets that are instigating civil strife. When governments in Africa refuse to play along with the likes of NATO and the U.S., the West responds by stirring up conflict which results in the tragedies we see in the news today. Real solutions require addressing these deep systemic issues. The final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculus says there's a 15% chance that there will be fewer than 375 million people in extreme poverty by 2030. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Happy birthday to Eric today. <laughs>